If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This week's episode is brought to you by DreamCloud Mattresses. DreamCloud is an affordable, luxury hybrid mattress that combines the best of latex, memory foam, tufting, and coil technology to provide the best sleep that money can buy, and an exciting combination of comfort and support. And what's particularly great about it is that with a 365-day free trial, that's right, a full year to try it out, you can take your time deciding whether you like it or not. For listeners of the show, DreamCloud is offering 200 bucks off your first order. Head on over to isaacmeyer.net slash dreamcloud, that's one word, dreamcloud, and click the link for the discount. And then once your new bed arrives, have a lie down, enjoy the comfort, and crank up the podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 247, Edoko. One of the things I really believe in very strongly is the importance of the ground-level perspective in history. You see, very often, especially on podcasts like this one, it's easy to focus exclusively on the topmost level of the historical narrative, the generals, the politicians, the businessmen, and so forth, and the big decisions they make. And for good reason. Those stories, by virtue of their political drama and intrigue and calculation or lack thereof that goes into them, are exciting and fascinating and horrifying in all the ways that humans tend to enjoy their stories being. Yet equally intriguing are the stories of regular people thrust into these seemingly larger-than-life events, which is why, when I was given the chance to do this interview, I was really excited by the prospect. Today on the show, I'll be talking to Mr. Isaac Shapiro, a man who has lived a truly fascinating life. Isaac, or Ike, was born into a family that had fled the chaos of the Russian Revolution, and which settled, after detours in places as far-flung as Berlin, Tel Aviv, and Harbin, in Japan. He grew up in Yokohama's foreign community, and, as a stateless refugee from the Soviet Union, ended up passing the warriors in Japan. Afterwards, he was recruited into the U.S. occupation, before eventually coming to the United States and naturalizing as an American citizen, as well as serving in the U.S. military during the Korean War. I'm speaking to Mr. Shapiro after having read his book, Eroko, Growing Up a Foreigner in Wartime Japan. It's a fascinating read, and I'll post a link to it on the podcast webpage and Facebook page if you want to check it out. I highly recommend you do. What we get to hear really only scratches the surface. Two quick things before we start. First, call recording is a tricky business, and while I'm pleased with the quality here, 
It is, of course, a bit messier than our recordings normally are, so please, I ask for your understanding and forgiveness. Second, thanks very much to Mr. Shapiro and to Chris Kelly for helping to make this happen. Without any further ado, here we go. All right, so uh, thank you very much for agreeing to be on the podcast, Mr. Shapiro. I really appreciate it. Um, and my first question for you, so how did your family come to Japan in brief? I know you spend a lot of time on this in the book, but just the kind of quick version for people who haven't read it yet. Well, they were the subjects of two separate diasporas. In my father's case, the family left Russia after the revolution because they were part of the establishment. In my mother's case, she was born in Odessa in the Pale of Settlement, and her family was the subject of persecution, pogroms. Hmm. When she was four months old, there was an infamous pogrom in Odessa, and (coughs) her father decided to move to China he knew others who had moved. Um, they had started to build the Trans-Siberian Railway. So he and his wife, my grandmother, and, and my mother, my four-month-old mother, moved to Harbin, which was then the um, transplanted Russian Jewish community of about twenty or 30,000. And she grew up there. There were... Russian language schools. She attended a very elite girls' school from which she graduated, and she went to Berlin to study music at the Conservatory of Berlin, which was then sort of the musical capital of the world, 1923 or 4. In the meantime, my father's family had had left uh, Russia, in the 20s and moved to Germany and Paris in the case of his parents. So my father and mother met in Berlin when my father was um, playing in various locations and symphonies, and she was a student at the conservatory. 1925, that's where the families came together, and she and my father got married. And they first moved to Palestine because he'd got the Zionist bug and he was offered a job as first cellist of the Tel Aviv Symphony. But um, she was all of 21 and she had twins, got pregnant with a third child. So in 1928, they gave up uh, their life in Tel Aviv. She said, let's move back to Harbin where we can uh, live very comfortably. Her father was still alive. And then she had her third child, my older brother, in Harbin in 1928. And then they moved to Japan, where I was born in 1931. So that's, that's how the two families came together with different backgrounds, different stories. It's quite the familial odyssey. And so you were born uh, in Tokyo, but you spent most of your childhood in Yokohama, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Well, I spent the first five years of my childhood back in Harbin because Mm -hmm. 
shortly after my birth in 1931, my parents split up. My mother took her four, we were four sons, and she was uh, 26 years old. She moved in with her father in Harbin, and I spent the first five years of my life in Harbin. Then in 1936, for reasons that are a mystery to me, they came back together and settled in Yokohama. I spent the next uh, seven or eight years in Yokohama, and then during the war, when the Japanese government moved all the foreigners away from the coast, which they built up to defend against an invasion, we moved to Tokyo and ended the war years in Tokyo. And then I left my family, just left on my own, to meet up with the American occupants and got a job as an interpreter. And then the rest is all outlined in my book. <laughs> it's quite a it's quite a story. I really was amazed when I was reading it myself. Uh, but I'm, I'm really curious about that um, part of your childhood in Yokohama, because you would have been fairly young in Harbin. Uh, I imagine Yokohama, the memories are a bit more vivid. And I'm really curious, um, what was that like? Was there much of a Jewish community or a foreign community in Yokohama? Uh, there, was did, a, yeah. there was a um, fairly substantial foreign community in Yokohama, yes, as there was in Kobe. Um, and... There was the international school that we attended, which was created by the Anglican Church from England, and still exists. And um, in those days, gave a when you graduated, you got a Cambridge certificate, automatic enrollment at Cambridge in England. Of course, all of that fell to the wayside during the war. The school was closed. All the teachers went back to England to fight. We were then transferred to something called St. Joseph's College, which was a uh, institution of the Society of Mary, a Catholic school. And that closed down uh, towards the end of the war when Yokohama was taken over by the Japanese military and school grounds were taken away from the school. And then the last year of the war, we were in Tokyo the, undergoing air raids, but not going to school. Mm. And then when when the war ended in August 1945, I got a uh, job with the American occupation. So in terms of the, you have the foreign community around you and then a Japanese community around that, how did Japanese families... Uh, around you, respond to your presence. Were you welcomed? Were you, you know, did they give you? Uh, yes, delete? I, oh, please. My my parents were very much welcomed. They spoke Japanese. Uh, they had Japanese students. They were musicians, which was a much respected profession, and we were not mistreated in any way. And we were also very importantly, without any nationality. My parents were both stateless, the Russian nationality having been taken away. So that that made a big difference then because you weren't Soviet nationals. We weren't Soviet nationals. 
and we weren't nationals of any other country. So you mentioned going to the International School in Yokohama and then the Marion School after that. Uh, and while you were at those schools, I'm very curious how, if at all, the school talked about the politics of what was happening around you uh, and sort of what was happening in East Asia and in the world. Um, well, there, was, there wasn't an awful lot of political talk. Mostly we were uh, attempting to preserve our lives, get enough to eat, and stay away from the bombs. Mm. Natural. And as political discussion. And as Japan's relationship, especially with Germany, started to grow much closer, uh, especially in 1940, 41, uh, did you sense any kind of change in atmosphere in the country? Did you feel less welcome? Did attitudes towards you? Did you notice any change, or did it feel just like it always no. had? Yeah. Fortunately, the Japanese were not really infected with anti-Semitism. That didn't interest them at all. It's gratifying to hear. And did um, did you, while you were living in Yokohama and Tokyo, did you engage in any like visible celebration of Judaism, like having a menorah or a mezuzah or anything like that? And if so, did you get any reaction from the neighbors? Uh, well, my father put on a skull cap every Saturday. He observed... I won't say he observed all the kosher laws, but he was very sensitive to what we ate to avoid um, any, you know, um, food that broke the dietary laws. Mm. And he insisted that we study Hebrew, which we did as boys. There was no no synagogue. We didn't attend services, but every Saturday my father put on his skull cap and he said his prayers at the dinner table, all of that was maintained, and the Japanese had no interest whatsoever in any of that. Um, and I know you mentioned going to a couple of shrines and temples when you were younger. Um, how was that experience for you, seeing kind of the the religion of religions of Japan for yourself? Did it... But interest you at all? Yes, of course. It was a subject of great interest, and uh, uh, we got to know something about Japanese uh, religious tradition. And of course, we at the schools we were surrounded by Christians, hmm. and the international Yokohama International School was uh, an Anglican school. The principal was a a minister in the Anglican Church. There was the Christ Church next door, and prayers were said at breakfast and lunch. And then at St. Joseph's College, which was a Marianist institution, we were exposed to the Catholic Church, but not in any negative way because the non-Catholics attended uh, an ethics course while the Catholics went to catechism. So the distinction was very strictly maintained. And looking back, it seems to me these people were extremely sensitive about difference in religion mm -hmm. and did not attempt to proselytize or convert the Jewish kids or the 
Japanese kids and so on. So coming to the war years, uh, what was it like to live in Japan when the war was beginning? Did you notice any difference in your life in January 1942 versus December 1941? Uh, yes, indeed, because leading up to the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese were already involved in a war on the continent of China. And uh, food shortages had begun. Rationing of food had begun. It, it was a, we were experiencing a wartime uh, life even before Pearl Harbor. And then what happened after that was when all the Americans were rounded up and sent back to the, their country on exchange vessels. And Japanese were returned to Japan. And uh, the sort of the composition of the foreign community started to change because we didn't we didn't have English and American neighbors, which we'd had before Pearl Harbor. Mm. And so as the war is unfolding, did you have a good sense of what was happening, especially beyond that first year when the war really starts to turn against Japan? Did you have a sense that the war was going badly, or was it all obscured by propaganda? No, no, we had a, we had a good sense. There were people whom we knew who had shortwave radios. It was dangerous for them, but they did. And so we received information about which way the war was going. And then, of course, there was the Doolittle Raid in 1942, and then in 1944, uh, the bombing of Japan began once America had captured the uh, Mariana Islands. Mm. Uh, and so you mentioned the Doolittle Raid, that first American raid on Japan. Yeah. Um, and, and then you were relocated into Tokyo, uh, kind of right as the air raids were really getting started on that city, really put you in a very a dangerous position during the war years. That's right. Um, so what was it like to live in Tokyo when those air raids were starting to pick up? Were you afraid? Did things feel normal most of the time? Or was this was there this pall hanging over everything? Or? Oh, no. The, once the air raids started, the, the whole um, sensitivity to the war changed because the bombs were coming down on us. Mm. But before that, the war had been offshore. But then slowly we, we observed as it was getting worse for the Japanese with the loss of uh, Okinawa and Iwo Jima and the Battle of Midway and the gradual uh, increases in the attacks on the Japanese mainland, we, we felt very much that the war was going very very badly for the Japanese. It was just a question of how, how long it would last before it was over. And uh, in terms of your Japanese friends or acquaintances, did you have any friends who joined the military or were drafted? And if so, do you know what happened to them? Uh, we, we, we had friends, but we didn't know what happened to them. And uh, they just left all the young, young boys, uh, left their families, and the, the whole life of the Japanese family was run by the women. The food was distributed by uh, neighborhood organizations and 
they were almost exclusively run by women. Men were all gone. Um, in those last few months of the war, so what was the mood like in the streets? Were things hopeful that the war was coming to an end or fearful of what could come next or something else? Both. Both hopeful and fearful. The Japanese neighbors all were hopeful that the war would end quickly and fearful of what would happen when Japan surrendered, which was which became inevitable after the air raids intensified. And it was obvious that the Japanese weren't going to win the war. So on the day of surrender, when it all comes down, you know, what, yes. what would you describe the mood uh, in the city? You know, how, are, how are people reacting to this news that the war is over? Well, they were both uh, relieved and apprehensive since they didn't know how they would be treated uh, but it soon became evident that the American occup occupiers weren't going to go around, um, you know, killing Japanese or doing anything terrible. Hmm. And speaking of uh, the kind of the terrible aspect of war, so after the war ends, a lot of these hidden truths that was hidden to the Japanese about Japan's behavior during the war in China. Uh, during yes. the occupation of the Philippines yes. and many other places, these start to come out in Japan. Yes. And when you learned yes. when you learned about these things, um, did they change your feelings about Japan? Did you have, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, was there any shift in perception that you had towards Japan and towards Japanese society? Or well, we we always distinguished from uh, sort of how we felt about Japan in general and what we knew the Japanese military had done. And we were very conscious of the fact the Japanese military occupiers had been uh, pretty cruel and uh, heartless in, in areas which they occupied. But we didn't hold that so much against the civilian population because they were decent to us. We got all the same rations the Japanese did. And, uh, our neighbors were not the slightest bit hostile towards us. My parents, being musicians, are very much respected. And uh, uh, so there, there, there was a, a kind of a dual feeling of hope and expectation that the Japanese would lose the war and gratitude that they were treating us in a civilized way. Um, and so after the war ends, you became an interpreter attached to the U.S. occupation. I don't want to go into that story too much because it's yeah. a great story and people, if they want to know it, should really read your book. It's really yeah. a, a, it's a, such a fantastic story. I don't want to spoil it for them. Um, and as part of those duties, you were a part of a team that actually got sent to Hiroshima after the bomb as part of an American sort of survey uh, Experience. That's right. And would you be willing to share some reflections from that experience? Yeah, although I, I, I go into great detail in the book, it was uh, an extraordinary experience because Hiroshima uh, had been wiped out with that single bomb in a way that we didn't experience in Tokyo. Mm. And we were quite shocked because you would stand at one end of the city and look across 
a completely destroyed city, which wasn't the case in Tokyo. And uh, so it was it was quite intimidating. We didn't realize the danger of, uh, of being in an area that had been bombed by an atomic bomb. And thankfully, nothing happened to me in terms of uh, any physical problem. And during your work for the occupation, so... You're at this point a teenager, um, right? And most yeah. of the the occupation GIs, they're in their twenties, maybe you know, occasionally late thirties. I, I was fourteen. And so, what's that experience like as a very you know relatively young man still? Um, well, it was very exciting. I learned to drive. I drove a jeep, and I was both a driver and interpreter, and uh, I was very warmly befriended by the American troops that I got to know, uh, the Marines and the soldiers. And then in the spring of 45, when my benefactor left Japan, I moved back to my parents' house, went to work for the Red Cross, waiting for my visa. I came in as a legal immigrant, <laughs> incidentally, mm. a quota immigrant, and had a visa. And uh, I was 15 when I landed in Hawaii in July of 1946. And you, uh, oh, you mentioned um, your benefactor who brought you to the United States. Uh, what was the, the purpose of that? Was it education or just better job opportunities? Both. Hmm. He thought the, there was no future for me in Japan. He thought there would be uh, a future for me in America, you know, it's the so-called American dream, and that I would be welcome there. I spoke good English and made friends easily. And so when I moved to Hawaii and entered Punahou School, age of 15, spent two years there and uh, two very uh, pleasant years, I assimilated very easily. And then after two years, I moved to New York, which was a, another dramatic experience, <laughs> entered Columbia College, and was pretty much on my own. Mm. But you you, uh, you did pretty well from there. Uh, I know you were president of the New York, uh, the New York Japan Society for a little while. Uh, they do... They do a tremendously important work. And I believe you, you mentioned in the book you, meant, you uh, met Emperor Hirohito on one occasion. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's... Yeah, a, I, yeah. We hosted um, him at, at a reception and dinner uh, when uh, he came to the United States on an official visit. And then later on, um, I was invited for dinner to the Imperial Palace along with John D. Rockefeller, who was chairman of the society. Oh, that uh, that must have been quite an experience. And actually, it really um, segues nicely into the last question I wanted to ask you, which was uh, your experiences going back to Japan since the end of the occupation. What was it like to go back to the country? Obviously, it looks very different in the 70s than it does in the 1940s. Uh, what was that like for you? Well, it, it was a thrilling experience when I went back and opened the office for 
my law firm in 1977, and we we were there for two years, my wife and our two daughters, and it was a completely different experience from that I'd had as a child there. Hmm. And then I went back very frequently on business and got to understand the Japanese legal system and work with Japanese clients and so on. It was a it was a thrilling experience. I can imagine. I mean, comparing what Tokyo looks like in 1945 with half the city burned down to yeah. the 70s, skyscrapers everywhere, prosperity. Right. Kind of. Exactly. Mm. Um, well, thank you very much for agreeing to talk with me today. Uh, My pleasure. And, uh, yeah, if, listeners, if you have a chance, the book is called Edoko. It's an amazing read, really fascinating story. Uh, and yeah, Isaac Shapiro, thank you very much for being on the podcast. You're very welcome, Isaac. <laughs> have a good Have a good day. Thank you too. Bye bye. Bye. And again, a hearty thank you to Isaac Shapiro for doing that and for putting up with my own technical incompetence as I troubleshot the recording setup. I hope you found it interesting. If you did, there will be a link to buy Mr. Shapiro's book on our Facebook page and on the podcast webpage. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Aubrey Keen, Yosef Cooperman, and Dian Ataminov for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we look at the fascinating story of the Seabold family.